This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Uh, practicing Buddhism for, I don't know, maybe 20, 27 years. She has been mostly practicing in the insight meditation tradition, the Vipassana tradition, Theravada tradition. And her uh, primary teacher over the years has been uh, Gil Fransdahl. John has also practiced in the Zen tradition under Darlene Cohen and Paul Haller. And uh, we're very happy to have her come out and uh, co-lead this retreat. So she'll be giving the Dharma talk and she'll also be, uh, she's been leading this retreat that we're having today. Good morning, everyone. So I think I was already introduced. So, you know, my name is Dawn. And I practice in the early Buddhist tradition, the Theravada tradition primarily. Theravada is the way of the elders. And uh, I'll be weaving that into this talk in a little while, the form of practice of the elders. As most of you know, I'm sure, this practice period that began this week is on the um, Lojong practice, practicing with slogans. And... This retreat today is on the preliminaries of practicing the slogans. And there are um, typically, the, many times, the preliminaries are spoken of in terms of four reminders. But in addition to those four reminders, there's kind of a foundation underneath all of the preliminaries. And that is being with the breath and the body being with experience moment by moment in a way that supports us to be able to interact with any of the concepts, any of the ideas in these slogans from a more visceral place, a place of body knowing, heart knowing, Buddha knowing. So I'll touch on the four preliminaries briefly and then I'm going to talk more about the foundational practice of anapanasati, which is a Pali term for mindfulness of breathing. I believe it's the same in Sanskrit, but I'm not certain. So the preliminaries, or the four reminders, are appreciating the preciousness of this human life, the inevitability of death, the truth that everything we do, for good or for ill, has a result. And an important truth in my own practice, I have to say, that too much focus on self-importance, on goodness or badness, or obsessing about getting what we want or not getting what we don't want, simply doesn't lead to happiness. So for me, these four reminders naturally kind of come up in two pairs. The first two, appreciating the preciousness of this human life and the inevitability of death kind of work together. Reflection on the inevitability of death is a very, very old practice. It's one of the practices that the Buddha taught that is recorded in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. It's called Marana Sati. Mara is death, Sati is mindfulness. So Marana Sati. And 
scholars think and practitioners, many agree, that being mindful of the inevitability, the universality of death, it's um, a clarification, a motivation for practice. It simplifies things. This isn't obsessing about death as a problem. It's not getting hung up on it. It's just simply acknowledging for each of us our time here is short. Sometimes it feels too long, but generally it's short. (laughs) And that tends to develop a sense of what's called sanvega, spiritual urgency or spiritual motivation. I believe there's a term in Zen, practice as if your hair is on fire. Samvega. Together, remembering this inevitability, along with appreciating life, appreciating the preciousness of life, each tiny drop of it, are very helpful in turning the heart and mind towards the uniqueness of this moment, this breath. This moment may feel very prosaic. You might be enjoying it. You might not. But one thing you can guarantee is that it will never happen again. Now is the only now you get. And the next now is the only now you get. But if you're thinking about it now, it's not now. It's the future. Right? (laughs) So this is an encouragement, both the inevitability of passing away and the preciousness of this human life is to show up for this human life this moment, one at a time. Hafiz, this is a little snippet of a poem of his called How Do I Listen to Others? How do I listen to others? As if everyone were my master, speaking to me those last cherished words. Is it possible to show up with this attitude of deep listening right now? Is it something you can bring to your own heart, your own moment? So the third and fourth preliminaries, reminders, in my mind are also paired. Simply put, everything you do has a result. Everything. That includes mind movement, action, speech, all of it. And too much focus on self-importance. One of the sutras we read this morning, the Loving Kindness Sutra, talks about being puffed up. It's encouraging us not to get puffed up. That kind of puff-uppedness or over-focus on my goodness or my badness, obsessing about getting something or avoiding something, It doesn't lead to happiness. So these can be linked in a number of ways. But for me, in practice, what that means is, for example, obsessing. Conditions more obsessing. I don't know about you folks. Maybe you're more talented at it than I am. But when I obsess about something, it absolutely does not guarantee I get that thing. Right? What it does guarantee is that I am more likely to fixate in the future. It's not just what we're thinking about that conditions our futures. It's 
how we think. More obsession leads to more fixation and more obsession. More letting go, more release, more spaciousness conditions more release and spaciousness. Inflated self-concern conditions more of the same. Generosity, the bodhisattva move of you first, that conditions more generosity, and that has an especially beneficial effect in relationship. Not with everyone, of course, but if I can feel clean about how I show up, I'm more likely to attract other people and move through the world in a way that feels easeful, regardless of outcome. Ajahn Chah, a very um, deeply respected monk in the Thai forest tradition, puts it this way. The present is the mother of the future. If you take care of the mother, she will take care of her child. This also is a teaching that is seen in many of the early Pali suttas, the earliest recordings of the Buddha's teachings in India. In Madhavanakaya 19, the Buddha says, and I'm paraphrasing here, this is based on a um, translation by Tanisaro Bhikkhu, whatever a practitioner keeps pursuing with their thinking and pondering, that becomes the inclination of their mind, of their awareness. The Buddha goes on to talk about cultivating positive mental habits and the benefit that has and how if not helpful mental habits are cultivated, what a problem that can be, how it unfolds in the future. Everything we do has a result. So, Mindfulness of breathing, anapanasati, is an excellent support in working through or putting down this baggage of the mind. It is a way to help open into the preciousness of this moment, the preciousness of this life. It can be a resource and a support. It is, I will say, the Theravada tradition in general, and early Buddhism in general, there's more of a focus on active practice than there is in Zazen. And by, I don't mean, I mean, clearly, we're, you know, rigorous in Zazen. There's effort. But what I mean by active practice is there are techniques. (laughs) Just going to cop to it, okay? And there's a lot of them, all right? However, the only meditation technique that the Buddha ever recorded in detail that worked, he talked about in detail some of the austerities we practiced that didn't work. The only one he recorded that he practiced before and after his enlightenment is anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing. He considered it to be a comfortable abiding after his enlightenment. So I figure if it's good enough for the Buddha before and after his enlightenment, it's probably good enough for me. 
Um, so I'm going to invite those of you who feel like it. You feel free to just sit and listen to me, especially if you're going on with your day, but especially those of us in the retreat, to treat the part of the Dharma talk I'm about to start on about Anapanasati itself more as if it's washing over you. I invite you to meditate as I'm talking. I will not be offended if you close your eyes or have them downcast or don't laugh or whatever. This is, I'm going to walk through the framework that the Buddha offered. So, many Buddhist texts are lists, right? There's lists of lists, as a matter of fact, in the Pali Canon. This is presented as a sequential series of instructions. And you're welcome to relate to it that way. I would say from personal experience and from the experience of others that I have practiced with, it doesn't have to be either sequential. It can pop in, any of these experiences can pop in at any point in a meditation session, in a retreat, sometimes even in daily life. They can come in any order. And in addition to being potentially a set of instructions, which is how most of us relate to it at first, it can also be a simple description of how meditation practice unfolds. So depending on your comfort level with techniques, you're welcome to either practice this along with the discussion or allow your mind and heart and body to just absorb it. And the next time something occurs in your meditation, that synchronizes with one of these phrases, you might be more apt to recognize it. That's helpful because recognition and appreciation conditions more of whatever that is. In this case, these are all wholesome, beneficial kinds of experiences. So the foundation of this foundational practice will be deeply familiar to those of you who've been doing zazen for a while. An upright posture, grounded, head balanced over the spine, ears over the shoulders, tongue, the tip of the tongue at the top of the palate, just behind the teeth. A balance of alertness and relaxation. The next foundation of the foundation is to bring awareness, mindfulness, to the forefront of attention. And the Pali for this talks about the forefront, one interpretation being around the face, the nose and the mouth. But the translation I prefer is awareness all around, all throughout the body, and perhaps all around the body, immersive. The remaining instructions are in four sets of four. The most important thing to remember is not to get all the details right, but that there's a general movement, just like there are movements in music. And the general movement is towards letting go, release. So the first instruction is breathing in a long breath 
one knows one is bringing, breathing in a long breath. I encourage all of you to just try that one. That one's not very hard. And breathing out that long breath, knowing we're breathing out a long breath. Breathing in a short breath, one knows one is breathing in a short breath. And when breathing out a short breath, one knows one is breathing out a short breath. These two sets of phrases are not just about long and short breaths. It's about exploring any quality, any kind of experience of breath that is there. Is it shallow, deep, easeful? Maybe it feels flat, not so interesting. Or maybe it feels deeply embodied and kind of tingly all through the body. Just noticing. What kind of breath is it? Making distinctions. But the most important thing is using the life's breath, that precious breath that keeps us here, as a tether to your attention. Here. Just here. The next instruction is breathing in, experiencing the whole body. Scientists say that 30% of transpiration happens through our skin. Can you feel the breathing activating the energy of this entire body? Maybe subtle changes in the hands or feet. The flexing of the rib cage. Whatever you're feeling. Not making anything happen. Just meeting what is. The breath can move through the body in all kinds of beautiful ways. You can see this in some of ancient Indian art. In Greek art too, the sculptures of people. Some of them look alive. And they're thought to have prana, life's breath, in them. Perhaps think of a Michelangelo sculpture. The fourth instruction, breathing in, one relaxes the bodily formations. Breathing out, relaxing the bodily formations. Bodily formations mystified me as a term at first. It's to breathing, it's to breathe in and out, noticing the habitual holding, tension, aches, or even ways of relating to your body. Why are my shoulders at this height? These hands are always cold, it seems. 
relaxing around whatever tension does not want to let go and just allowing it to be there is another way of relaxing the bodily formation. So, these first four that I just reviewed are the doing portion of anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing. The next set is more about just experiencing what's there, noticing what's there. And I'm just going to say, not everyone is going to be having these experiences as I move through these phrases but to be open to the parts of your experience that might resonate a little bit with what I'm talking about. So breathing in, experiencing contentment or joy or enjoyment. Breathing out, experiencing contentment, joy or enjoyment. Offering yourself permission to appreciate any part of your experience that feels good in your heart and your mind. Again, there's no need to make anything happen. Just to just to be alive is enough. Next set It's breathing in, experiencing any sense of pleasure or well-being that might be there. And breathing out, experiencing pleasure or well-being. And sometimes this is noticing the absence of that. For me, this instruction is about noticing, is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant, or is it neither? Acknowledging what's there and giving oneself permission to really absorb and appreciate any of the pleasant, any of the well-being. From this place, wherever this place is, The next step is to experience one's own mental formations on the in-breath and the out-breath. Breathing in, experiencing the act of thinking as thinking. Breathing out, experiencing an emotion as an event in the moment. meeting what is and knowing the difference between being in the movie theater and completely being pulled in to the film or being in the theater and knowing that you're in the theater knowing that the projector is running and that actually everything that's happening is a rapidly moving set of illusions Breathing in, experiencing, thinking as thinking. 
breathing out, experiencing thinking as thinking. With emotions, this can be more just acknowledging. Sadness has arisen. Happiness has arisen. Jealousy has arisen. Irritation, perhaps. No need to fix, change, explain, or solve but just being with. One really helpful thing with this is to pair it with the next instruction, which is breathing in, relaxing these very same mental formations, breathing out, relaxing the mental formations. It's allowing them to be there, but allowing them to fade to peripheral vision or fade to the background just a little bit. And if they don't want to do that, relaxing the need to have any experience at all, that's in particular. Holding them lightly, the way you might hold a baby bird cupped in your hand. You don't know the moment it needs to fly away, so you don't want to constrain it. But you want to be gentle and present. We acknowledge that these two instructions, experiencing and relaxing mental formations, for many people this can be the bulk of the practice. So the encouragement is to relax around it, hold it lightly, and sometimes... It's just to meet it with courage and integrity as best you can. Sometimes the mind is just on a tear and there's nothing that's going to stop it until it runs itself out. When I was in India, fairly early in my practice, I stayed at a um, traditional medical institute for anthropologists. They were sort of letting me do self-retreat there, but I ran into a couple of young anthropologists there and One of them taught me this chant, we're going on a bear hunt, bear hunt, bear hunt, we're going on a bear hunt, bear hunt. You can't go over it, you can't go around it, you can't avoid it, you just got to go through it. (laughs) That's kind of sometimes what dealing with the mental formations is like. So I respect your bears when they come up. Try not to run at them. Try not to run away from them. Either one will activate them, I promise you. But if you engage gently, they may just hibernate. So, little moments of the rest of these instructions may appear for you throughout your meditation. Breathing in, experiencing the mind and heart. Breathing out, experiencing the mind and heart. So in the early texts, there's a distinction between the activity of thinking or feeling or planning or even having an opinion and the quality of the citta, the heart-mind itself. And one of the easiest ways to sort of get in touch with what these early instructions are talking about when they're talking about the citta, the mind-heart, is to ask yourself a simple question. 
I promise that the answer will be yes. So you don't need to worry about that kind of answer, but notice what happens to your awareness. Here's the question. Am I aware? If so, what is the attitude in this heart and mind right now? What is the quality of this awareness? Is it contracted and distracted? Or is it spacious and settled? Is it broad and panoramic? Or is it focused like a laser? Is it present? What is the quality? There's no wrong answer. But lightly noticing can be helpful. Just experiencing what is. Then breathing in the next instruction says to gladden the mind and breathing out to gladden the mind. I've heard pleasing the mind was another translation. This gladdening of the mind doesn't have to be a Herculean effort nor does it have to be forcing oneself to feel any particular way. However, for example, invoking part of the loving-kindness chant often will help people gladden the mind a little bit. Gratitude, for me, is a particularly helpful attitude to start to drop in. Just inviting, seeing if the heart and mind wish to take up this attitude. It's not a requirement. We're not force-feeding experiences here. And then with that... Breathing in to settle the mind and breathing out to settle it. Settle the heart. Resting the heart on the breath in the moment. And then at times, the last five instructions will emerge. Breathing in liberating the mind and breathing out liberating the mind now this can be everything from full liberation a rare event to the much more common event of popping out of or off of some fixation distraction mood and feeling this momentary sense of freedom as awareness returns to the present moment in the mysterious way that it sometimes does. Because we're not calling it there. We're not aware. Acknowledging and celebrating those moments. Liberation from needing to be so attached to each thought, notion, or emotion that flits through. And the next four instructions are actually... You could talk about them being 
elaborations on or depictions of different facets of awareness as it of liberation as it's understood in the ancient texts. Because it is a process in the ancient texts. It might be a process that goes by like that, but it's still a process. <laughs> and um, practice can be like kind of a virtuous spiral, like it's possible to get a teeny tiny taste of each of these in daily life or in a meditation session, perhaps even in a moment of grace sitting on a park bench. And my own experience of this practice is that it can always deepen, no matter where it starts. So the first one of the final set of four is breathing in, observing impermanence. Breathing out, observing impermanence. You can observe the impermanence of this breath. All the little sensations, the in-breath and the out-breath. The fact that when the out-breath is gone, as you release it, it's gone that particular out-breath will never return again. One of the easiest places to notice this kind of inconstancy, this flux, is in hearing. Whatever you're feeling about this Dharma talk or about my voice, you might take a moment to notice that it's constantly changing. It rises, shifts for a while, stops, arises again. This insight, this noticing directly of impermanence is the foundational insight in early Buddhism. It underpins the insight into emptiness that the later schools emphasize so much more. It's from a different perspective. But one can lead to the other. It's actually quite beautiful. They can work in tandem. Breathing in, observing fading away, breathing out, observing, fading away. This could be like thinning clouds that can be directly observed, or like thinning hair that's much harder to observe on a moment-by-moment basis. It does happen. There's a lot of trust involved, because the fading away that is being talked about here is the fading away of grasping, of clinging, fixation. So perhaps at the end of a meditation session, checking in. Am I a little less attached to whatever was bugging me when I walked in the door this morning? That's a fading away. It's not that a problem goes away, but are we relating to it with a little bit more spaciousness? The Pali term viraga implies a fading of dye in the sunlight a gradual process for most of us. And then breathing out, or in, I'm sorry, in and out, observing the cessation of clinging itself. This can be the cessation of clinging to any particular thing. I no longer cling to wanting to be, or to being, an artist. Perhaps there's some identity in you that you no longer cling to that meant everything to you when you were 22 
or 12 or 5. It's been let go. So to notice those moments. And then the last instruction is breathing in, observing relinquishment, and breathing out, observing relinquishment. So this, again, these last four, can be talking about the highest reaches of liberation as understood in the old elders' tradition. But they also can happen on a daily basis in small ways, and those small ways help feed larger ways. Relinquishment here talks about not buying in to something that hasn't been working, not standing behind it, a final letting go, setting down. It doesn't mean that that way of being or thought pattern or habit will never come back, but it means I've no longer identified with it, and I'm no longer entrenched and identified in a way that is going to perpetuate it. It can run itself out and slowly cycle down. So sometimes we can just let go, the apple falls to the ground. Other times it's more like letting go of a bouncy ball and watching it bounce slowly into smaller and smaller and smaller bounces until it finally comes to rest. So again, each of these stages, each of these instructions talk about a gradual movement towards release, softening, opening. And generally, you don't have to remember any of these in particular, I hope that this talk and running through all these 16 steps can you believe we got through 16 steps Um, you don't have to remember 8 you don't even have to remember 3 but notice them when they come up for you and if there's one takeaway it's that the breath can be a barometer for how you're doing it can be a resource it can be a skillful means to settle embody, simplify, silence the chattering that often goes on between our ears. You can deeply listen to it. And that inner silence conditions wisdom. Thank you for your kind attention.